from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zak. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 24th. Today, how reparations shaped the fate of a family and the true story behind the song Killing Me Softly. This conversation started really bubbling up last year. It was the 400th anniversary of the arrivals of the first enslaved Africans to this continent. And that was also the first time there was a hearing in recent years for H.R. 40, this piece of legislation to study reparations for slavery. And there were so many people there. There were like three overflow rooms. The typical black family in this country has one-tenth the wealth of the typical white family. Black women die in childbirth at four times the rate of white women. And there is, of course, the shame of this land of the free, boasting the largest prison population on the planet, of which the descendants of the enslaved make up the largest share. This piece of legislation was actually sponsored by Michigan Democrat John Conyers first in 1989. And so what we're doing is saying, let's bring forward, America, the most hidden, important, silenced subject that we've ever had. He did it every single session until he resigned in 2017, and no one really paid it much mind in the past. My name is Tracy Jan, and I write about race and the economy at The Washington Post. I did not know this until I started reporting this, but the reparations bill that Conyers had floated first 30 years ago was very much inspired by the reparations that Japanese Americans got. Japanese Americans who were incarcerated during World War II did receive reparations 40 years after their confinement. So many of them were no longer alive, but 80,000 out of 120,000 people who were incarcerated were able to receive some sort of reparations. What a family loses is their life, really. The loss of being able to live a normal life. And I think an apology says we acknowledge that you were forced to live something other than what you had always intended to. So Robin Syfax is 28 years old. She lives in Sacramento, California. And what's really interesting about her is that she has both sides. She's both Japanese-American. Her grandparents were interned during World War II for being Japanese-American. And on her Black side, her ancestors had been enslaved by George and Martha Washington. And she's actually a descendant of Martha Washington. So what role did reparations play in the life of her family. So her Japanese-American side got reparations, $20,000, and a formal apology. The interesting thing is, on her Black side, we know African-Americans have not received reparations, but one of her ancestors was actually the illegitimate child of Martha Washington's grandson and one of his enslaved maids. So he actually, upon her marriage bequeath her 17 acres of land on their Arlington plantation, which is 
now Arlington Cemetery today. And because of that, because of the illegitimate child that he had, um, my family was granted their freedom from slavery pretty early on. So Robin Syfax will talk about coming to um, Washington on a middle school class trip, driving past Arlington and pointing out the school bus and saying, hey, my family used to own that. And her classmates are looking at her like, what? <laughs> but, um, you know, that very real piece of her family history is something that her family says helped them gain wealth. The fact that one member of their family actually did receive some form of reparation, how did that play out over the course of generations in terms of changing the status of, of their family now? That meant everything to that family and where where it is now. I mean, the family is in a bunch of different books about the Black elite. There are museum exhibits dedicated to the Syfaxes. Her uncle would say that um, the land that they got was their form of reparations and helped build their family wealth. It did provide a basis for the family to start to build their own economic prosperity through control of that land. And ultimately, over time, it's subdivision and sale. Robin's great-great-grandfather was a Howard Dean and mathematician. Her great-grandfather was a doctor, one of the first black graduates of the University of Michigan Medical School. That was in 1924. And if you think about achieving that advanced level of education for anyone in the United States in the 1920s, that was a rarity. That was a, a very rare circumstance. And so the fact that they had this property, that that helped them be able to build other types of wealth that gave them the ability to pay for college educations and gave them an, an ability to kind of go after bigger dreams and aspirations. Right. And they were given this land 40 years before the Civil War even ended. So what do they say about the importance of other people getting some type of monetary compensation the way that their family was able to? I love this family because it's not an easy answer that everyone has, right? Everyone has their own perspective. So it very much reflects Americans' debate over reparations. Her father, for example, doesn't believe that cash reparations are necessary. He doesn't think that would make a difference to African-Americans today. I don't see that that will fix a a deeper issue. I think it's a generational issue. We we were lucky enough to have opportunities early on that others don't, you know. He believes in some sort of reparations, but not mailing checks out to individual people. I, I don't think direct payment to African Americans is the right option. I think that <clears throat> providing them with something what I think is that uh, education is the most important thing to, to give uh, us because I, I don't feel that in, in a lot of areas, especially depressed parts of, of the country, we have the same opportunities that a lot of other people do. On the other hand, her uncle, who has made a life in real estate and understands the power of home ownership, thinks that, you know, other Black families should get what they had. 
being able to have property ownership. This wealth that was generated from property ownership. Well, if you took, how much, what was the number that we used? Well, you guys said this last night after the dinner? Robin's father and her, and her uncle, they say they're, they're kind of like policy nerds. So they'll sit around like debating calculations on what reparations could mean. We took some number like $100 billion or something yeah, like that. We divided it up among 40 million. So one night I was over at the uncle's house and, you know, there was a whole spread of cheese plates and different fancy wines. And her father and uncle were talking about how much would it mean for reparations if we divided this amount by this many African-Americans in this country? I think that we came up with, we divided it out somehow and it came up to about $7,000. Right. Exactly. We're like, okay, well, what is it that you can really do with, you know, well, $7,000 actually move someone into permanent prosperity. And her father just scoffed at the idea that that would make like any huge difference in fixing the income disparity between white Americans and black Americans. But for a lot of people, it's not about the money. It's not just about like what the money would do. On her grandfather's side, on her Japanese American side, $20,000 is not an insignificant amount, but it comes nowhere close to making up for the amount of property business loss, income loss from being held in a prison camp for World War II. We had to start from scratch. Well, my name is Mitz Yamamoto. I was born in 1926. So for that side of her family, for the Japanese side of her family, what was their experience during World War II? Like, what happened to them and how did they get to an internment camp? As her grandfather was 16 years old in Sacramento, going about his life, when all of a sudden these notices started appearing around town. And... They had just days to report to a relocation center. They were strawberry farmers, and it was the peak of harvest season. And he just remembers driving away from the family farm and seeing acres of these ripe red strawberries just waiting to be picked and thinking about how much money they were losing Hmm. because they were being taken away in the middle of this harvest season. As we were walking, getting out of the house and going down the road while we see a strawberry patch and it was all ripe strawberry was out there. And, mm. and, and I really, to this day, I really don't know whether all of the strawberries that we did pick and take in, you know, whether we, they got any money for it or not. I, I really have no idea. You know what happened to all the ripe strawberries. Yeah, well, those uh, those are probably either the people came and helped themselves or rotted on the vine. How long did they end up staying in an internment camp? They were there for three years. They were there at three different internment camps. First, they had to report to this assembly center in Fresno, which was nothing more than a converted fairground. Some families slept in stalls, like where barn animals were held. And after spending a few months there, they were shipped on a train across the country to Jerome, Arkansas. Well, I guess, where we going? I mean, you know, what are we going to do there? Or what's over there? You know, we've had no idea. 
What's the weather? We we don't know what Arkansas is. I mean, cold, hot. We had no idea. When the war was over and they got out, what was life like for them having to rebuild? They lost everything. They had nothing to come home to. They didn't even have a home to come home to. The government gave people $25 and a one-way train ticket to a place of their choosing, and they ended up back in Sacramento. (laughs) I got $25 and a train ticket. That That was the end. Their farm had been leased to someone else. They went to collect their belongings at a warehouse that the War Relocation Authority had recommended people store their stuff in, and they were told it had been vandalized and everything was gone. So they literally had nothing. That's it. I didn't have, we didn't have nowhere to go to. Uh, but uh, my mother's cousin, had, they had, still had their uh, farm here. So we stayed with them uh, for about two, three months until we found some place to go to. So Mitz had graduated from high school while they were incarcerated in Jerome, but he couldn't go to college. It just was not an option. He would say, oh, it was not too bright. But in reality, he had to work. His dad was 70 by the time they left camp. And so he had to help support the family. His mom started picking strawberries at someone else's farm. He helped his dad get a job as a gardener, like a living gardener of a white family. So they had a place to live. And Mitz went to work piecing together all sorts of different jobs at a hops field. He pruned grapes. He did a lot of different things until eventually he landed at Campbell's Soup and worked there for decades until he retired. So then thinking forward to 1988, when the U.S. finally decided that they were going to give reparations to people who'd been interned, how much money did Mitz get and and how did that change his life or his family's life? Yeah, he got $20,000 like others who got reparations. He felt very almost guilty about getting the money at first. He said he just didn't deserve the money. He felt like it was his parents who had built everything, built a life in the United States and lost everything. Can you talk a little bit about what the reparations meant to you and your family, even though your parents were gone? Yeah, that's, that's, that was, yeah, that, that, that money, I feel like I only accepted it because I figured that my folks deserved it. I didn't, you know, because I didn't lose anything. But uh, You don't feel like you lost anything? Hmm? You don't feel like you lost anything? Yeah, I, I, I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel... A lot of this, the way he talks about his time in internment, is very common to a lot of Japanese Americans of his generation. They were very quiet about their ordeal. A lot of them did not share anything with their kids. They would always say, like, what camp were you in when they meet other Japanese Americans? It's like, what camp were you in? And for a lot of kids when they were young, they thought their parents were talking about, like, summer camp. So many years, they just did not say anything. And Mitz gave the money to his four kids and split it up between them as some sort of like symbolic passing on of wealth, even though they didn't have much to pass on. And, and what did they end up doing with that money? So Ginny Yamamoto Syfax, Robin's mom, ended up investing the $5,000 that she got in an 
an investment account that Mitz had opened for her when she was a kid. And she didn't really think much about it. She knew, like, you know, that her parents had been in internment camp, but she never really asked them because she could tell it wasn't something that they wanted to talk about. And just life moved on for 30 years. It actually wasn't until 2019 when they visited on a pilgrimage, the Jerome camp. Oh, kind of nice to go, you know. So... What made you want to go? Home. It was my home. It really hit home to her what that experience must have meant for her parents and grandparents. But it wasn't just that they received money from the government, right? They also received like a formal apology for internment. That's right. So along with the $20,000 check from the Treasury of the United States, there was a two-paragraph letter from George Bush dated October 1990. And for Ginny and her parents, that apology actually meant more to them than the actual check. Yeah, I think I think the apology was more than... In fact, I was looking at it the other day. <laughs> You have a copy of the apology? Yeah, you want to see it? Yeah. So Mitz at first felt bad about taking the check, but he felt like the apology letter helped reset the course of history. You know, for so long, Japanese Americans were viewed as traitors, even though there was no justification for their detainment. Later on, there were lawsuits and investigations into all the different justifications that the government had given at the time and were found that they were false. So... For them, the apology meant a lot more. At least maybe, you know, I got something in writing that somebody apologized, I guess, you know. But Mitz would also say upon reflection that the check actually helped make the apology more sincere to him. Because it's America. We got to pay for our mistakes. So for Robin taking in all of these different experiences from different parts of her family, how does that make her feel about reparations and what reparations mean? She thinks that African-Americans should have reparations. For her, reparations is healing. It's a way to heal both the community as well as the country. And an apology about, you know, Atoning for the wrongs of the past is, is um, necessary and powerful. She's in an interesting position because the Black side of her family did get their form of reparations back before the Civil War. But I think it would be an apology. Would be. It would mean a lot to a lot of people, I think learning all about what her grandparents had gone through on the Japanese-American side, and then seeing this reparations letter, she thinks that the story is incomplete. Only one side of the story has an ending. Tracy Jan reports on race and the economy for The Post. To read Tracy's story and see photos of the Syfax and the Yamamoto families, go to postreports.com.
So this Sunday, Roberta Flack is going to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Grammys. And, you know, Roberta Flack is famous for this slew of number ones. Feel like making love. First time I ever saw your face. And of course, killing me softly with his song. Killing Me Softly, it was a huge record. We all know it. It was the Grammy record of the year and went to number one in the Fugees, did their version in the 90s. Yeah, when I, when I think about Killing Me Softly, I actually I think about the Lauryn Hill version and I forget that there was one all the way back in the 70s. Yeah, well, I'm older than you are. <laughs> I am Jeff Edgers. I'm the national arts reporter at The Washington Post. I've been following the story about the origins of Killing Me Softly with his song and basically the controversy about how it was inspired. What I don't think people understand is that that song was actually first recorded and released a year before Roberta Flack's version by a singer-songwriter named Laurie Lieberman. And so I came to see him to listen for a while. And do you know anything about, like, what inspired the song? I mean, that's the thing. That's what this is all about, really. The story was fairly clear for decades. So the story really begins in November 1971 in Los Angeles. I was 19 years old, and my girlfriend invited me to hear Don McLean at the Troubadour. He came out playing solo. A long, long time ago. He had just released American Pie, but the song that caught her ear was this heartbreaking ballad called Empty Chairs. I feel a trembling tingle of a sleepless night Creep through my fingers and And I felt like he was singing truly about me and my life. I felt like the audience was looking at me. I felt embarrassed, exposed. And after the audience filtered out of the club, I stayed there and I wrote this poem about my feelings on a napkin. She scribbled this down and then she went back to speak with her manager and at that time, this 44-year-old guy she was having an affair with, Norman Gimble. I called Gimble, and I told him about this experience that I had, and I read him my poem. Norman Gimble and Charles Fox, who wrote all of her songs, sat down and, using her experience and also their words and music, wrote this song. The story is mine. When I hear that lyric, I heard he sang a good song. I mean, that's me. 
you know, my friend Mickey told me all about Don McLean, and she wanted me to come see him. And, and so the idea is that in, in the song where she's saying, Killing Me Softly with his song, she's actually referring to this show, this Don McLean show, and her experience of watching him play his music. Exactly. That was the story for decades. Early on, Fox and Gimbel and I, we were all on the same page talking about how the song was written, that it came directly from an experience of watching Don McLean and a poem of mine. If you look, do a search of articles from the early 70s, she appears on the Mike Douglas show and tells this story. That's a song that was made famous by Roberta Flack, but I understand yes. that you had it before her, didn't you? Well, it was written for me, yes. And, and how did that come? It came about that you were watching Don McLean perform or something, weren't you? Yes. Um, well, uh, the people who write the songs for my album uh, are people named uh, Charles Fox and Norman Gimbel. Norman Gimbel and Charles Fox were a songwriting team. Norman wrote the words, Charles played the piano and wrote the music. They also had a production company and they had signed Laurie Lieberman to a five-year contract. So for a few years in the 70s, they managed her and wrote almost all of her songs. In about 1976, she and Norman Gimbel, who had broken up romantically, she also wanted to break away from them as an artist. And that was a kind of an ugly split. They said that I owed them $27,000 for touring costs and some orchestration fees, which I couldn't. I didn't have that money. I had no money. And so for three more years, I didn't record. I was just out of the business. And so for years and years and years, they had no connection. How does it come to be that there's a question about what her role was in making this song? I think that what aggravated Norman Gimbel is that in 1997, Laurie Lieberman was making a comeback after years of not recording, and she did an interview in the New York Times in which she called her former managers controlling. And then in 2011, she wrote a song called Cup of Girl. Will you take a cup of girl, share a tablespoon of world, for some color don't forget parental strife. Add an ounce of opportunity and a touch of promiscuity. Let her simmer gently on an open fire. Which is a very dark portrayal of sort of the Svengali and how you create an artist. And Norman Gimbel actually wrote to her, criticizing her for that song. He was quite angry. And from about that point on, there were efforts made by Gimbel and by Charles Fox, his co-songwriter, to describe this story, the one that had been published and talked about so many times, as urban legend. I just wanted to know why suddenly they would change the story when they were sitting in the green room during the Mike Douglas show and when I told the story. Well, that's the thing that I don't understand, is if there's actual pieces of journalism from the time where they're all talking with a, a same shared story about the genesis of the song and the fact that, that it was inspired by this experience that Lori Lieberman had, like, how can they just change their story all of a sudden and pretend like there's a whole other narrative? I want the truth of how the song was written to come out. I want the acknowledgement for my participation and my involvement in the song. And 
I don't want, I'm not looking for credit and I'm not looking for money. I just don't understand why they changed the story. You know, I, I have been called a, a liar in essence and it feels terrible. It's, it's really for my own integrity and, and, and uh, for the truth of the, of the story to come out. That's what I really want, Jeff. So Norman Gimbel is no longer alive, correct? Right. He died in 2018 at the age of 91. But Charles Fox, his collaborator, he's the one who is trying to discredit Lori. Did you get a chance to talk to him? Like, what does he say about what he's been doing to try to make the argument that she didn't play a role in making this song? Well, I did try to talk to Charles Fox repeatedly. I called his home multiple times. I called his business line. I wrote to his assistant. And unfortunately, he did not make himself available. The official comment from his assistant, he referred me to Fox wrote a memoir called Killing Me Softly, My Life in Music in 2010. And his assistant said that would provide a, quote, full personal account of his experiences in writing the song with Norman Gimbel and what the song has meant to him. I bought the book, and it said, I still have a special place in my heart for her. That was all he said about Lieberman. What do you think this story says about the state of the music industry beyond just Lori Lieberman and and this person that she used to have a relationship with and this song that we all know and love? Like, what do you think it says about music that there is this battle going on? This, to me, is a story about control. It's about how artists are put in a position where even in the best situations, their contribution, which you can argue is the main contribution, is discounted and lost. Did Norman Gimbel and Charles Fox write the song? They very well are given credit for it, and I see no reason to dispute that. But the idea that Laurie Lieberman had nothing to do with it seems absurd. Jeff Edgers is a national arts reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 